Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Just want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters and uh, all my supporters on Anchor over there. You guys are awesome. You guys are making the show possible. Hey, if you like this show, consider supporting me over on Anchor or on Patreon. Uh, links will be in the description. And uh, today we have a really special guest, uh, Dr. R.T. Mullins. We're going to be talking about God and time, and specifically his new article in Philosophia Christi called The Divine Time Maker, and then it's uh, forthcoming. So you guys got a little inside scoop here. I'm super excited about this. So without further ado, Ryan, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, no problem. So uh, something that uh, I told you about that uh, my guests will kind of know is that I am sick of reading uh, just something I, I scrolled up about you guys. I want to hear from you guys. So Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into philosophical theology? What what are you doing? Where are you at right now, actually, too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different pieces of the story of how I got into philosophical theology. I'll tell a unique piece for you that I've not, I don't think I've told on any other shows. Thanks. So when I was working on my undergrad um, at the, it was called Atlanta Christian College at the time. Now it's called Point University. I was doing a degree in humanities and biblical studies. And I was working at a small church in Georgia as a youth minister. Uh, and so a lot of the questions that the students were asking in my youth group, like were just really, really big questions. And I wanted to give good answers to them. And a lot of the good answers were coming from philosophical theologians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that kind of put me on this, pushed me further down this trajectory of, okay, if I want to give good answers to people in my own church, I need to understand these issues better. I need to pursue deeper degrees. So I went and got a master's in philosophy of religion at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And then, yeah, what's well, a good place, you know, because that's that's where you are right now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was there. Um, and then I went to do a PhD in theology at the University of St. Andrews. After that, I did a postdoc at the Center for Philosophy of Time, uh, not Philosophy of Time, Center for Philosophy of Religion at the University of Notre Dame. And then I taught for a year at the University of Cambridge teaching philosophy of religion. And then I taught for a little bit at a boarding school and then ended up back at St. Andrews for a three-year position, a research fellowship. And then now I am at the, uh, what is, well, wait, no, actually, then I went to the University of Edinburgh where okay. I did, a, I was at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities. So again, like as a, as a research fellow. Yeah. And then now I'm at the advanced, uh, the Collegium for Advanced Studies at Helsinki. So at the University of Helsinki. Okay. Yeah. And uh, is, is that a, another, like, uh, time position is that another couple of years or is that like a mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's a senior research fellowship for two years and um that yeah they've just they've got this really amazing facility and a really good research cohort from people all over the world doing lots of different crazy projects so i i fit in quite well it's good yeah that's awesome you're like uh ask ash Ketchum for uh of all these uh <laughs> postdoc research degrees man this is sweet yeah. for our uh, position yeah you got to catch them all mm-hmm, so exactly uh, <laughs> yeah, something that uh, that's interesting. So I've been following uh, the the online meme war, and right now uh, you, have, you have meme war on your page. I've been uh, just dropping in one or two. There's no one who's going to be able to compete with uh, with uh, Nemesh over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going wild. 
But um, I, through your guys' interactions, I've been thinking more deeply about God and time and uh, his his relation to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, for our listeners, so I, I did an interview with with uh, with Nemish, and that's going to be coming out in a couple of days. But um, we talked about, about classical theism. So I wondered if you could just kind of give us an overview of neoclassical theism. I know it's a, a huge thing. It's a, a podcast mm-hmm. episode and its own. But are you able to just kind of summarize it for us? Yeah. So... So I should say, like, the concept of God is that God is an absolutely perfect, uh, ultimate source of reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what a model of God does is it tries to flesh out that concept into to like a, a unique conception. So it's going to tell you what it means for God to be absolutely perfect mm-hmm. and then tell you what it means for God to be like the ultimate ground of reality. Mm-hmm. And so what a neoclassical theist does is says, God creates the universe ex nihilo. So uh, the universe is not co-eternal with God. There's some sort of state of affairs where God exists without the universe. Uh, and God's absolutely perfect in the sense of you know, being a necessarily existent being who's all powerful, all knowing, and you know, a lot of your standard omni attributes. Yeah. But the neoclassical theists, they're going to reject one or more of the four classical attributes of timelessness, immutability, simplicity, or impassibility. Okay. I think they should reject all four, but <laughs> there are some different people who are like, oh, I'll just reject one or the other and you know, and still affirm that God foreknows the future. So I'm not an open theist. And, and since I affirm like creation ex nihilo, I'm not a panentheist. And, and so they'll say these sort of things, but I'm like, I think you should reject all four of these because I think if you reject one, you're going to get some, and not the other four classical attributes, you're going to get some incoherences pop up. Um, and, and, but yeah, but that's the big idea in a nutshell. That That's interesting because that's what a lot of the, the classical guys will say, you know, this is mm-hmm. a, this, you have to take this as a whole. And if you don't, it starts falling apart and you're saying, yeah, that's right. So just don't take it as a whole at all. In, I don't think, okay. They want to say that all four of those are systematically connected. Mm-hmm. I can't quite figure out how to get all the things nice and neatly connected. So I've written a couple of papers mm-hmm. on this, trying to do this. And then I, so I've got one where I'm, I'm just like, I can see how to connect timelessness and mutability and simplicity. I don't see how any of that entails impassibility. Mm-hmm. I can see how impassibility fits with that package, but I don't see how it entails it. But I do think if you, affer- if like, say you want to do like what Linda Zygzebski does, where you're like, just get rid of impassibility, timelessness, totally cool, simplicity, mutability, totally cool, but get rid of impassibility. Then you've got these weird problems, like God's going to be eternally suffering and, and timelessly <laughs> suffering. And, oh, if, and if, yeah, and if it's like, if you affirm simplicity, then God's suffering is going to be like identical to God's essence. And wow. That sounds really bad because um, yeah, imagine when you get to heaven and you're like, oh, man, this is so great. God, how are you doing? And God's like, well, I'm eternally suffering right now. And, you're like, and oh. suffering, still suffering. <laughs> yeah. And so you're like, oh, sorry, sorry bro. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what to do. So, yeah. So it seems like I'm like, I'm like, get, just get rid of all four. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, man, I, I uh, as my listeners will know, I keep going back and forth on, on simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, your your uh, your chapter in uh, the TNT Clark uh, Analytic Philosophy book uh, was was really helpful and discouraging because I was at a time when I was just starting to, you know, kind of lean more towards simplicity. And I read yours because uh, I wrote the index for that, uh, you know, just name dropping myself here. That's right. But, uh, but yeah, it, it just kind of wrecked me back down. I have a lot. I have philosopher friends, theologian friends kind of tearing me apart. Um, but all my everyone who says they want to deny simplicity still, they say that they, they still have to make a way to hold on to uh, aseity. And is that is that a key thing? Is that neoclassical theism? Do they still want to say? Do you guys still want to say that God is Asse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and typically when I see like open theists too, unless they build way more into the concept of Asseity than I think they ought to, um, I, yeah, I think it's fine. So uh, John John Peckham, he's written a, a really nice introduction to the doctrine of God, and he's got a forthcoming book on the divine attributes. And so he and I were working on a, a book series, just kind of trying to develop this 
we don't want to call it neoclassical exactly, but like something, this kind of model of God we're trying to develop. And, and he's like, yeah, I'll say it's really great. Totally affirm it. Um, it's, it's an essential attribute. Do I need simplicity for that? No. And then um, there's some other people who develop arguments going, what's the argument from Osadi to simplicity? It's not really obvious. It doesn't actually work at all. No, these things really do come apart. So, yeah. so that's, yeah. So I, yeah, I think you can easily affirm Osadi as long as you're not building in the entire classical model of God, which is what sometimes people do when they affirm Osadi. They're like, oh, it just happens to entail like impassibility or simplicity because I snuck those into the definition of what it means right. for God to be us saying. I'm like, well, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's all right there in uh, Exodus 3.14, you know, the burning bush and he's outside right. and that means and the whole thing falls from that. Exactly. What yeah. is my name? I am the great I am who is completely and beyond all, you know, and you're like, wait a minute. That's not okay. Yeah, that's right. That's good. Yeah. So uh, Paul Gould opened that up for me uh, mm-hmm. uh, where he just, he kind of split the two and said, yeah, well, he can be assay and, and we don't need simplicity. Uh, assay, absoluteness, those kind of things are, are ones that I, I definitely want to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, but so m- moving on from that. So um, this is, this was really interesting for me reading your uh, divine time maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you talked about different views of God and time, but that both camps, right and left, whatever you want to, however you want to uh, split them up. They both say that God is in, in some sense responsible for creating time. Uh, I, I like that. But can you go over the, the two different uh, options you give for us? Mm-hmm. Well, so the claim is not that they created time, but that they are responsible for the existence responsible. of time. Responsible, yeah, because there's lots of things. So like, you know, like Paul Gould and like some of those other things in these debates about abstract objects. And they're right. like, God's responsible for these in some sense. Does he create them? Are they just in his mind? What's going on here? Yeah. And so I'm like, right. Same thing with time. Like everybody wants to say God's responsible for the existence and nature of time in some sense. What does that look like? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm like, well, okay, I, there's at least two views that I've seen throughout history, throughout the Western world, and also in Hinduism, which is this one claim is God creates time. Uh, so I call that the creationist option. And then the other view is that time is in some sense identified with God. Maybe it's just identical to God himself, or it's an attribute of God, like one of his essential attributes. Yeah. Uh, and so then I call that the identification view. So those are the two main views that I look at in the time maker paper is this creationist option says God's a time maker. The identification view, which says God's not a time maker, um, but he's more like a watchmaker because he creates like some different features of time that are not really essential to time, but they're essential to their like properties of a like a timeline or something like that. Yeah, man, that's that's really interesting. I, I was just wondering, uh, just as you said that, I wonder. So some people like like PVI or um, or Yandel would say that, like the the eternal uh, the forms exist alongside of God, and and he's like not really responsible for making them. I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, are there any? philosophical theologians or any like like orthodox christians that would say that time exists alongside of god and yet he's not responsible for its existence um i don't know any would say that in the hindu tradition this debate really does come up though where mm-hmm. the where there's these early uh, jainists and hindus who are saying time is this eternal uncreated substance mm-hmm. and since it's uncreated like by definition it's not the sort of thing god could create right right um and then uh, some people in the Middle Ages, uh, like uh, Raghunata Shiromani, he's like, ah, but I kind of want God to be like responsible for all the stuff. Yeah. So what do I do? And he's like, ah, I can, I can, here we go. Uh, like, ontological parsimony. Get rid of all these other things. I only need one eternal uncreated substance that can do all this stuff. God can perform all the same roles that time would perform. Mm. And it actually makes more sense. So just identify God with time. Uh, yeah. And so it's not this separate thing existing alongside. Instead, God just is time itself. Uh, is is that a, a type of identification view then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very explicit. He's like, yeah, time is just 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 is God. Literally you know? identifying. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he does yeah. the same thing with space, and he does the same thing with the ether. And I'm like, but is there? Is, I, this is off topic, man. I'm sorry, yeah. but is is that? I I, there, I question that because 
did did he remove like the personality of God in making in, in identifying time with God? No. So what you would be doing is you'd be like, right, okay, so time is this uncreated eternal substance that's got, you know, it's responsible for doing certain things. And then you're like, well, God does all that. So God's time. Well, God's responsible for a whole bunch of other stuff too. Uh, so, you know, t- time just has, may, maybe it's just, it's just an attribute of God or just, yeah. it's got a whole bunch of other properties you didn't expect. Okay. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. That's really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as far as, as you can tell, no one is putting time as some abstract in Plato's uh, world out there. I can't off the top of my head. I can't think of anybody who's done that. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody has, I've seen people accuse temporalist of doing this all the time. Okay. Uh, like Hugh McCann does this. Like he accuses people. And I'm like, oh, I don't, it's certainly not Swinburne's view. It's certainly not like, you know, Dean Zimmerman's view or this is so-and-so it's certainly not Craig's view. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, but there might be somebody out there. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's always for, uh, for whatever crazy position, there's always somebody who holds it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to get into the creationist option and the ad- identification option review, um, we, we got to talk about time a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, what is time and can you, can you go over those various options you've given? Yeah. So what I do in the paper is I point out that creationists typically hold to something called the relational theory and then, uh, identification view typically holds to what's called the absolute theory. So quick snapshot of each view, the relational theory, they tend to kind of like either ignore what, what time is. So like we'll do like a San Augustine does, which is they'll ask the question, what is time? And then just ignore it and move on. And I'm like, oh, that's annoying. Can you say a little bit more? Yeah. Or some later, like there's this assumption though, that's built in there. That is time exists if and only if change exists. Mm. So if no change exists, no time exists. Yeah. So you need something that changes in order to generate time. And then when it kind of gets developed later on, the relational view will say, uh, time is just a, merely a relationship between events or between moments. Mm-hmm. So time exists if and only if change exists, and it's and time is just merely a relationship between events or moments. Absolute theory says, nah, that's crazy. That's nonsense. No, uh, time is like this. Maybe it's like this uncreated eternal substance, um, or it's a natured entity that makes change possible. It's mm-hmm. this thing that makes change possible, and it's responsible for different things like being the source of moments of time. It's responsible for um, uh, like giving unity to a series of temporal moments or a timeline. It might be responsible for making things exist at the present. It's going to be responsible for the direction of time. It's going to be responsible for the way we talk about past, present, and future, what's earlier than later than. So time's going to be this thing that actually plays all these roles. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, Oh, yeah, that's good. Okay, so so can you introduce uh, the listeners? We, we've talked. I've talked about time uh, in a time travel episode with Taylor Sear. Mm-hmm. If you're interested, go back and listen to that. But um, just real quick, can you lay out like presentism, growing block, eternalism, moving spotlight? Moving spotlight is what I yeah. I like. But maybe you can yeah disabuse me of that one as well. Sure. <laughs> so okay, so these are views on what's called the ontology of time, and so the ontology of time is asking the question: What moments of time exist? Mm-hmm. And so a moment of time is, is like a, it's like a way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. And so a presentist says, well, what moments of time exist? Just one, the present, that's it. Past moments no longer exist. Future moments do not yet exist. The growing blocks like, "Mm, you know, let's, let's, let's have a few more. So you've got that present moment and that's totally cool. But those past Mm -hmm. moments, let's keep those, let's keep those. And so time's like growing and growing and growing and growing. Future Mm -hmm. doesn't exist, uh, but the past never ceases to exist. So you've just got past and present existing. That's it. Eternalism uh, in some sense says all moments of time exist. They're all equally existent. Yeah. Don't really want to talk in terms of past, present and future because they don't want to say there's such a thing as an objective present, but they do want to say all whatever moments of of time exist for a timeline. They all equally exist. Mm 
Yeah. So the year 2020 exists, 1983 exists, 2025 exists, all those moments just exist. Yeah. Now, the moving spotlight, the traditional moving spotlight, what it does is it takes that eternal block of time. But it's like, I do want an objective present. <laughs> Where do I do that? I can't, I can't figure it out. Okay, well, what if like I've taken this eternal block and I add something else to it? I add this sort of like sort of like a spotlight that uh, like just kind of points out that's the present moment. And as, as something else becomes a new moment becomes present, the spotlight moves to like point out that's the present. And then it moves again to point out that's the present and that's the present. Mm-hmm. So you've got this eternal block with this extra structure, which is the spotlight that somehow picks out the objective present. Yeah. That all encountered like a really a bunch of like really weird problems. So it became very unpopular. And but like but uh, Ross Cameron uh, comes. Well, I don't know if you can say comes to the rescue because he's like, actually, that that old view is kind of garbage. So let me give you a new one. So he's like, I'll give you a new moving spotlight. And so the new moving spotlight, what it does is in one sense that he talks about is like it's an enriched presentism. So you've got the present moment is the only one that's real or actual. Mm -hmm. But there's other stuff that exists, too. And so there's all this like non-present stuff that exists. He brought a bunch of non-present stuff into the present kind of. That's what it looks like. Yeah. But I've been really struggling to to work through this because it doesn't, it seems like those past moments actually still are there, but though they change uh, their character when they cease to be present, uh, is, it seems what's going on. Whereas that's not really the case on the, on the original moving spotlight. So as like things go through this episode, the, the original moving spotlight would say, well, all those all those temporal parts at the earlier moments, like towards the beginning of the episode, they're still thinking they exist at the present. Mm-hmm. They're just mistaken. Oh. Yeah, and so that's like one like problem for the moving spotlight. You can never know you exist at the at the present. Um, whereas the new one, though, like well, the stuff that like that's no longer present, it's not conscious, and in fact, it's not actually even physical anymore. Uh, so all that stuff like there, it mm-hmm. ceases to be physical it ceases to have mass it ceases to have consciousness it ceases to have all these sort of things yeah um, so it solves some different problems but it's it's really weird and so i'm still trying to i'm still trying to figure out exactly what's going on here um, yeah so there's some, miss, some pieces missing for me and how to tell the story okay that new one sounded crazy until you just explained it that way and i i think of like i like it i don't know how to do anything with it but sure. it's like it's like a youtube video where mm-hmm. like the, the little red dot that's playing and the past mm-hmm. is it's different they're not like us whoever's watching on youtube right now uh, Dr. Mullins and I, in the introduction, we're not still thinking that we're going right now, even though we that moment is real and you can go back to it. You can move the spotlight of the cursor. Maybe that. I don't know. We'll it's see. Something like that. Yeah. 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 But so, Give me a couple uh, years. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Story. Definitely. You got to come back on and, and help us with that. So then moving on to uh, the theological conversation, you mm-hmm. have uh, divine eternity. And and there's there's two different views on this. And. I, I thought that divine eternity was one view, but you're saying that the divine eternity and then there's timelessness and temporal eternity. Can you yep. lay that out for, for me and the listeners? Yeah. So to be eternal just means to exist without beginning and without end. Okay. And there for a while in some of the literature, there were people talking about like, well, eternity is this one view. And then like, there's this other view called everlasting. Yeah. And uh, I found that really sloppy. And then more people now, such as myself and then TJ Mawson, who affirms timelessness, uh, and then William Hasker, who aff- affirms uh, temporality, they're starting to get more, I think, better clarity and start talking the, in the way of like eternal just means existing without beginning, without end. Okay. What it means to be timeless is you got to say some extra stuff. And what it means temporal is you got to say some extra stuff. Yeah. So what's that extra stuff? So timelessness says without beginning, without end. So eternal. But God also exists without succession, mm-hmm. uh, without temporal location and without temporal extension. Yeah. So God's not undergoing changes. He's not doing one thing and then another and then another. So without succession, he's not located now. 
um, because anything that's located now is in time. Yeah. Uh, and he's not, doesn't have a temporal extension, meaning he's not like persisting from moment to moment. He's not spread out uh, over a series of moments in any sort of interesting way. And he wouldn't have like discursive thoughts either reasoning from one line to the other. Right. Not or any tense ideas or tense uh, knowledge. Well, he couldn't even have tense. You couldn't really even talk about tense lists exactly. This is something Paul Helm has, um, who defends divine timelessness mm-hmm. has articulated more clearly in some recent papers saying, yeah. if you talk about tenselessness, you're still talking about temporal propositions. Uh, yeah. So you don't want to say God tenselessly exists because then you're saying God temporally exists. So you got to yeah, say, cause you're, you're still kind of presupposing that. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay. So then, uh, temporality, that's, that's timelessness. Yeah. Temporality. Yeah. So temporality says eternal being without beginning, without end, totally cool, but God can undergo succession. Uh, not all temporalists think that God necessarily undergoes succession, but it's at least possible because maybe God's like, I don't want to do anything. Uh, you can't make me. And <laughs> so I'm not going to create any universe. So I'll just stay without succession, but he could, if he does something, if he performs an action, uh, cause he's got free will. He's got all, all, uh, all the power. If he freely performs an action, he's going to bring about a change or succession in his life. Yeah. And so he can undergo succession and yeah. he does have temporal location because he exists now. Um, or if you're, you know, a growing blocker, then you're going to say, well, he exists at all the past and all the present. If you're an eternalist, you're going to say, well, he exists at all the moments. So he's going to have, um, you know, temporal location. And then he'll have also temporal extension because he's going to persist through time in some sort of way depending on which ontology of time you hold, you'll have yeah. a different story of what that looks like. Yeah. But, but yeah, that, that's, that's the idea. And so then the, the concern there uh, for, for timelessness, they, the timelessness proponents would say, well, you're having God change. God's changing then because if he's mm-hmm. experiencing time, then he's, if he's moving from T1 to T2, he's different at T2 than he is at T1. Mm-hmm. Is, is that the is that the main criticism from from those guys? That's one criticism uh, to which a lot of temporalists go, meh, yeah. So what? Um, you know, uh, that's what it means to perform a free action. You're yeah. not doing one thing and then you do it. Uh, you're not thinking one thing and then you think something else. Yeah. Uh, you know what's going on right now. So of course he's going to be changing. So what's the problem? He's not changing in terms of his essential properties because right. he's essentially perfectly good and he's essentially perfectly wise and perfectly in power and blah blah blah. We can't change in those ways. But the way he exercises those powers, well, of course, that can change. Uh, so they'll just kind of shrug their shoulders and be like, I don't, I don't see the problem. That's such a good, that's such a good point because um, that's kind of the intuitive like knee-jerk response. Like, oh, God's changing. Well, then how mm-hmm. do we know if he loves me still? How do we know if he's going right. to keep his so, Well, those are his, his, his essential character is not changing. Mm-hmm. But even, even if he uh, is in time and just God is at T1 now at T2, and yes, that's changed, but it's not his... It's not his essential attributes. It's not his moral character or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he might stop treating you a particular way because you start being a little jerk, you know, and then God's like, <laughs> now you're going to experience a little bit of wrath. Yeah. Um, you know, I love you. This is going to be good for you. But like, I mean, come on, kid, you know? Yeah. So, so, so God could express again, express his love and express his goodness in different ways. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's great. So um, I'm not sure if we'll be able to get through all of this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I always... I always go go big here. So uh, I wanted to start with the creationist option and uh, with, with one of the proponents, Augustine, and um, just have you kind of go in on it. So, so what does Augustine purport like in, in his uh, creationist option for the existence right. of time? Yeah. So, so again, since it's a creationist option, he's going to be saying God creates time. Mm-hmm. And, and so Augustine's like, right, that's cool. And then Augustine seems like he's got some kind of relational theory of time because he says time exists if and only if change exists. Mm-hmm. So in order to get time, Augustine's like, God's got to create things that are mutable, things that can change yeah. and they're undergoing change. And then you'll get time existing. 
So by God simply creating a universe, um, then God creates time. And so that's how it goes for Augustine. Mm-hmm. And now Augustine's got some other things. So he's a presentist. So he's like present, only moment of time that exists. And then he also affirms that God is timeless. And then he affirms that God creates the universe ex nihilo, which means that God and the universe are not co-eternal and that there's some sort of state of affairs where God exists without the universe uh, and that God does not create the universe out of any pre-existent material. Yeah. So those are some of the assumptions that Augustine has uh, to, to, to kind of develop his, his story of, of how God's responsible for the existence of time. Yeah. And then this, uh, so Stephen Nemesh, uh, he put this meme on your, on your meme war page mm-hmm. or on Facebook and the meme war. And it was one of the most accurate things I've seen all week. It was uh, Marshall, uh, Joe Rogan's dog. And he's this really funny, cute little dog. And he's next to this like statue that Rogan has of a werewolf. Yeah. And it's like, it's like RT Mullins arguments is the werewolf. And then RT Mullins is this, this happy little Marshall dog because you're just this happy guy. But then when you read your work, you are ruthless. Uh, yeah. And so then you go in and all these problems, uh, for Augustine, problem of creational change, problem of eternal creation and revenge of cre- uh, creational change. I want to go through those because they're so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been uh, one of my friends on Facebook uh, has been bugging me about a couple of these. So it'd be really helpful to, to kind of go through with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you can you lay out the first one, the problem of creational change? Why is that a problem for Augustine? And what is it? Yeah. So the problem of creational change, it starts with um, like, it's like a couple different puzzles that like Augustine's like working out. And so one of them's like, well, it looks like, looks like when God creates the universe, like he begins to be related to the universe in some kind of interesting sort of way. Uh, and so, and so you might say something like this. So you'll say, if God begins to create the universe, then God changes. Mm. And since the universe hasn't always existed, because Augustine said that Augustine's like, the universe is not co-eternal with God. Well, then you know, it seems like God begins to be to like create the universe in some kind of way. Uh, And then if God creates the universe then God changes. So it's, it seems like it just kind of follows right from Augustine's own understanding of creation ex nihilo. And this idea that God, there's some state of affairs where God exists without creation. So God just begins to be related to the universe in some kind of way, begins to create the universe. Yeah. So he, 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 which is weird because he's uh, timeless, and so it's yeah. like, and, and he doesn't change. But then there's this right. new relation happening, and mm-hmm. that's the problem that that happened. That people have been asking me about a lot. Yeah. Um, real quick, actually, before I jump the gun, I, I want to talk mm-hmm. about the sooner objection. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We can get back into that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, would this be a good spot, or should we go back to it after? Uh, well, actually, we can go into that too, because like, so I mentioned, like Augustine has this puzzle, one of which is the creation problem, but like, he's got this other one that he mentions too briefly, which is the sooner objection. Mm-hmm. And, and so Augustine doesn't do a whole lot with it. He's just kind of like, what was God doing before he created the universe? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, why didn't he create sooner? And then Augustine tells this joke, which is, you know, like, well, God was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. Love that one, yeah. And, and, and I think it's, I think it's pretty funny. Um, and then Augustine's like, well, you know, like seriously though, like there is no sooner because like time begins to exist when creation begins to exist. So like, since God's timeless, there's no sooner, but there's uh, different ways to kind of develop the argument. And so what I do is in the papers, I look at this way that Leibniz develops the argument against Samuel Clark, who affirms the identification view and Clark's uh, a creationist. And so I'm like, well, here we go. Cool. Let's see how these, some of these go. And so you got these two kind of assumptions built in, into the argument that you start with. And so the first assumption is that God's perfectly rational, mm-hmm. which just means uh, at least according to Leibniz is that like God always performs an action for a reason. And then, in, and this is like the more Leibnizian twist on it, which is in the absence of a reason, God will not perform an action. Mm-hmm. Like God just couldn't perform an action. Yeah. And then the second assumption is, or the second premise of the argument is that God could have created the universe sooner. And, and so from there, 
you can develop different kinds of arguments from from that. And so, for example, you could say like, well, you know, God has no reason to create uh, the universe at this moment instead of that moment, because, you know, there's all these different moments that God could have created. Why that one instead of that one? Well, there's no reason for him to create that one instead of that one. Well, then he's got no reason to create at all. Right. Uh, and so since God's perfectly rational, if he has no reason to perform an action, well, he's not going to do it. So God can't create the universe. And they're like, well, oh gosh. Um, you know, and so someone like Samuel Clark, who affirms these two assumptions, he's like, yeah, but I have to say God did create a universe at that particular moment. And then you're like, well, okay, so God has no reason to create at that moment. So he's not going to create at that moment. But you said he did create that moment. So now you got this contradiction. God created this moment. God did not create at this moment. Ooh, that's bad. You don't want that. <laughs> Nobody wants that, right? Yeah, yeah. That's terrible. And so someone like Augustine or like Leibniz, they're just going to go, well, I've got a really easy out. That, that second assumption that God could have created sooner get rid of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's no, there's no sooner, um, you know, time began. There we go. No problem. Yeah. There is literally no sooner. So yes. God, God created, can you even say at T1 or. Uh, you, what Augustine says is he creates time with creation. So it's yeah. not that he creates it at T1, but he creates it with, uh, like time comes into existence with creation. And that's that relational, uh, that's the relational view then, right? Yeah. So there, yeah. there has to be something to change that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, that's so confusing for me about mm -hmm. God like existing and okay. You could go with like all my reform listeners, uh, will be like, well, dude, it's God. So why would yeah. you expect it? Okay. Yeah. I get that. But like God, this brings us right into the, the problem of creational change. Right. Yes. And, and that's why I wanted to, to set up there and you do that in your paper really well. So God goes from not creating to creating. Yes. And then Augustine's response is to uh, deny the, the, the second premise that God begins to create. Yes. Because it, it seems like, well, God is not creating. He's existing eternally. He's got the, the reasons thing is interesting too, because I think if, if God did have a reason to, if you're for this, uh, the sooner objection, if God did have a reason, then maybe you get modal collapse. Um, so it depends what you think those reasons are. If they're like yeah. really, really good reasons, he couldn't have done anything else. Yeah. Like if they're like, um, fully determinate reasons or something, uh, then like, Ooh, yeah, yeah. You might get a modal collapse okay. unless God creates a universe that's completely open. Um, okay. so it might be, this is good. gets into another paper I'm working on. Like a panentheist is going to say, God has to create the universe. Like God can't exist without a universe of some sort. Yeah, it's his but body, if, right? Yeah, well, sometimes they'll say it's his body. Sometimes they'll just give me, it's, it's metaphorically a body. And I'm like, okay, give me some real claims instead of the metaphors. And so yeah. the real claims is no creation ex nihilo. He has to exist with the universe of some sort. And so that looks like, oh, maybe you might get a modal collapse. But it might be the case that God, God's like the greatest possible world is one where the future is completely open. What's going to happen? Uh, ooh, God doesn't know um, mm -hmm. because it, it, it's, it's completely indeterminate what's going to happen. And yeah. so you get what you get is God has no freedom over whether or not to exist without a universe. But you don't get a modal collapse because what creatures and what God himself do at any subsequent moment after the initial crea creation, that's completely indeterminate. It's completely open to see what happens. You're, that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty in these, these models of God is, is yes. balancing the, the, cre uh, the freedom. Where are you going to put the freedom? Are you going to put it in the back end with an open universe? Are you going to put it in the, the front end where God is free, but then you might have this modal collapse afterwards and – yeah, that's that's really good. That's a, a helpful thing to think. It's a lot through. of tricky stuff to like that I'm currently working through for my yeah, my big time. Project. A lot of bullets yeah. to be biting and, and mm -hmm. a lot of uh, the werewolf coming out mm -hmm. and uh, setting exactly. all sorts of horns for folks. Yeah. So so this problem of of creational change, uh, Augustine denies the premise that God begins to create. Yes. What, what do we make of that? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, what do we make of that? 
So when Augustine's like, he's like, well, look, it's, it's, it's fine. Like God's eternal. What are what eternal beings do? Well, they're eternally doing whatever they're doing. So if mm. God's creating, he's eternal creating. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some problems that might come up from that. We can get to those in a minute, but that's, yeah. that's, that's the claim. Yeah. God is eternally creating. Yeah. Oh man. So that's so weird. You, you bring this, you bring this into, uh, is it is it night the Nicaea the debate which council was yeah. it? Yeah, so the so the council of Nicaea, oh, yeah, okay. with, the, with the doctrine of the Trinity. So what I do is um, I'm like, well, okay, so if God's eternally creating, then it seems like you might get an eternal creation, and so that's yeah. the the next problem that I look at. It was just called the problem of eternal creation. Yeah, and, and so the, basically what I do is I let I'm like, if God is eternally causing X to exist, whatever X is, you know, just insert something there. Well, then X eternally exists. Yeah, and a lot of panentheists, uh, a lot of pagan philosophers like Proclus, that was their argument against creation ex nihilo. They're like, mm -hmm. God's eternally creating, so the universe is eternal. What are you Christians going on about? You guys yeah. are talking nonsense. And and someone like Augustine or like John Philoponus, who want to affirm creation ex nihilo, they've got to do some something. They got to do some kind of fancy footwork here because they're going to have to say, well, maybe God can eternally create or eternally cause something to exist, but that thing doesn't eternally exist. And I'm like, so you have to reject the claim that if God eternally causes X to exist, then X eternally exists. And I'm like, I don't think you can do that because in the, in the Nicene doctrine of the of the Trinity, the claim is that the father eternally causes uh, the son to exist. And so therefore the son eternally exists. Yeah. And so if you're Trinitarian like Augustine is, then and you're trying to be consistent with like the Nicene council and like the tradition before you, you've got this causal claim right here, eternal cause with eternal effect. And so I'm like, ooh, you can't reject that premise then. Um, because then you're going to, you're going to get like Arianism and then well, well, that's not, that's not what we want. Um, this is not good. That's such a, that's what I mean. That's what's so, you're so tricky, right. dude. It's so good because <laughs> that's what, that's what a lot of our, our Christology hangs on. I guess if you were to say like, well, they were wrong, but then you're, you're yeah. like going against Nicaea. Yeah. If, if Christ is uh auto theos, then you could say, well, that his relation as son to the father is eternally generated. Oh, but you still get that. You still get the eternal generation and, and the problem of, so, so I wonder, I wonder if it even makes sense to say like eternally creating, if, if it's, can you say eternally creating and it's, it's not eternally generating because it seems it's, like then yeah. you're, you're running into like this, like Plotinian emanation that God's like sneezing out creation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so in the creed itself, it says the father uh, um, generates the son and yeah. uh, so genitas and then, um, but he creates the world, which is also genitas, but they, they add an extra in to get the, the eternal generation. Um, and, and so the creation is just like, it just has one in, in, in it. So the spelling is just slightly different, but then apparently when you look at the history of thought, people forgot, uh, the, the, this new, like new fancy spelling. And yeah. so you see people just kind of like saying both like back and forth. And so it just gets really, really messy and confusing. Yeah, you, gotta, you gotta remember that second new there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, 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 that's a problem. Uh, so they, they want to make this kind of distinction be like, there is this distinction between eternally generating and eternally creating. Yeah. And the, the claim is a gen generation is where you've got an eternal cause with an eternal effect. Whereas uh, creation is something that has a cause that begins to exist. A cause that begins to exist. Um, yeah. And so this is supposed to apply to like you, if you have a kid, you cause it to exist. Um, and so it doesn't have to be, they don't really, it doesn't really specify what the, what kind of cause it is. Whereas the, the, the genitals for the eternal generation is actually specifying eternal cause with an eternal effect. 
That's that's at least that's supposed to try to specify. Wouldn't eternal creation have an eternal cause and a temporal effect? Or something. That's what I mean. That's what you see, like Augustine and these others want to do. They're like, yeah, that's what that's what we get. But then someone like who's a panentheist or some of these other pagan philosophers, like Proclus, they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, like this, 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 like help me out here. Like, how do you yeah. get that? And and they they find the replies like really shallow and really okay. ad hoc. Yeah. So okay. that's that's kind of where you get this class of intuitions here. So that's that's the problem of eternal creation, and then yeah. you you move on to the revenge of creational change. Mm-hmm. Um, can can you lay that out for us? Yeah. So so even if you think the Augustinian maybe is like they can say God like eternally creates this universe, and then the universe somehow not like eternal. Like it seems like they're still going to have some kind of change going on here, yeah. because you still have God without the universe, and then God with the universe. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm like, okay, so if God begins to be causally related to the universe, then God changes. So that's the first premise. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it seems pretty obvious that like the universe begins to exist. Uh, then like that, you know, then that's because like God does in fact come to be causally related to the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's the case then, you know, well, then God is going to change. And, and, and I'm like, again, so I want to say like, look, it just really seems like when the universe comes into existence, like that is a new kind of causal relationship because God, like when his pre-existence, like a uh, state, he's not causally related to anything because the universe doesn't exist. The universe right. is not eternal. So when a human universe comes into existence, that's got to be a new causal relation. And the relation between father and son is not, um, it's, it's generational. It's not like, would you say not causal or? Oh, no, it's causal. It is causal. It is what Creed says. Um, but it's an eternal cause with an eternal effect. So it's not, it's not something that comes new. So it's, yeah. so God never begins to, uh, yeah. so the father never begins to cause the son to exist. Yeah. So you and can say really that. important to avoid Arianism. Right. So, so add intra that that's happening eternally mm-hmm. but add yeah. extra there's no before creation yeah exactly so that's where so i'm like okay i'll grant you all the nice scene distinctions you want yeah. Ooh, uh, well he's gonna have this other problem though because yeah sure the father and the son they never begin to be in a new like a causally related to each other they just always are mm-hmm. but the universe though the universe that comes into existence the, the father and the son and the spirit were not always they were not eternally causally related to that universe and now all of a sudden it seems like they are that's yeah. a change yeah Okay. So, so as it's come up for me, people, people will use weird words like creatorhood, mm-hmm. like God, God is, has, has gained this creatorhood. Uh, he's become yeah. creator. So you have God, yeah. you have changing God. God went from non-creator to creator. Yep. And um, so I, I was wondering, you know, uh, I'm currently studying with, with Van Hooser and mm-hmm. he is deep I'm, uh, in my head and I have yeah, a lot yeah, of speech yeah. acts going on and stuff like that. So uh, the way I was thinking about this is that God is eternally speaking uh, ad intra um, and that might require some some time, which I think I'm okay with. And I think I'm, I'm close to your view when, when we expound that later. Um, but so God is speaking to the son about the spirit. God, the father speaking to the son about the spirit, the spirit speaking. So there's this like, uh, I want to ground... Davidsonian uh, triangulation in ad intra, like God is there's first, second and third person. You have interpersonal communication about a third. And because of that, I have this argument that we'll see if is any good, but so because God is eternally speaking and because God speaks creation ex nihilo, ex nihilo um, mm-hmm. there's not like a new thing happening to God. God, it's not like God is resting and then exercising this power, or He has an un uh, uh, a potential power and then it's being actuated in His creation. He's potentially creator, and then He moves from potential to actual. Because I don't, I don't want to say there's potentiality in God. Mm-hmm. 
But so because he's eternally speaking, and that is the mode or the mechanism by which he creates, it's just moving from add intra to add extra and the relation between, uh, so there's a new relation coming between mm-hmm. now he's creator uh, because he's, you know, that that's the, re- the relation between him and his creation. But it's not like he's moved from potential to uh, actual. And so I, I, I in uh, in our private conversation here, I said you could disabuse me of this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what do you what do you make of that? Because I, I want to say that God's not moving from potential to actual. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying I'm trying to understand. So the, so it sounds like the claim is God's just eternally declaring that creation will come into existence whenever it does in fact come into existence. No, that- no. So 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 I think maybe my problem is a little bit. I'm trying to answer maybe a different problem, mm-hmm. but but I'm hoping you can point me back to other problems too, so I can think through. Sure. Um, so. The, the problem I'm thinking of is like, how did, how did God go from being non-creator to creator mm-hmm. and what I, and, and acquiring this like property of creature, creaturehood or, uh, or creatorhood. Creature, yeah. Yeah. How, how, yeah. Creatorhood. So what I want to say is that, that, that relation is, be, he, he didn't, he didn't acquire a new uh, action. He didn't require a new p- potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he was always speaking, and so then he just turns his speaking out and creates ex nihilo. But through his words, he speaks you know reality into existence by the same mechanism that he's ad intra uh, exercising eternally. Oh, um, I think okay. I'm still not entirely certain what this means, yeah. but um, the one possible worry would be this. So uh, typically, especially within reform thought, and then you see this in a lot of uh, scholastic thinkers as well, there's this distinction between God's actions, his imminent actions, and his, um, what are they called, like transitive actions, or his operations. Yeah. And so the ones are supposed to be like the actions of the of generation and procession. So the father generating the son and proceeding, and proceeding, spirating the spirit. There we go. Yeah. Well, those are necessary actions, uh, according to the traditional understanding. Uh, they're actions that God has to perform. So they're not like, they're not contingent actions. They have to they have to be performed. Um, whereas all of his actions add extra, all of his actions uh, is, is transitive actions. Those are actions like creating the universe, sending the sun to become incarnate, whatever scheme of salvation God wants to select, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those are all contingent actions that God did not have to perform. And they're supposed to be different things. Yeah. Of course, then you throw simplicity in there. They're like, well, you gave me this difference, but now they got to be the same exact action, but we can, we can set that aside. Um, so what I would, I guess one problem you might face is if you're wanting to make this eternal speech act, mm-hmm. do whatever it is, uh, the communication between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit also be the thing that creates, then it seems like you're going to be distinct, like you're going to be blurring this distinction between the actions, the imminent actions and the transitive actions. Yeah. But maybe yeah. you can just say, I just don't care uh, about these <laughs> scholastic distinctions, these reform distinctions. I mean, that's yeah. way out. I, I want to hold on to history as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're slowly dragging me uh, away from some of those. But but yeah, I want, or, you know, I have that inclination to be like, well, I, they they were smart. And I want to mm-hmm. affirm what I can from them. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So the, the problem of, of creational change. So maybe I would just say, well, can, can so God is, what I want to say is God is not changing when he creates because um, he's al- he's always been speaking, mm-hmm. but then he moves to speak creation into existence. And then there's this relation from creation to him that makes him creator. But that's like a, a, a relative relation or something. It's like, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not a changing, his, it's not changing his essential nature or his attributes. He's not moving from like, he had this internal potential to create, but he's just speaking. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's kind of muddled. 
Um, so I'm trying to think, uh, yeah. So I feel like what you'd have to do is basically do what, a, like, like, uh, Bonaventure or mm-hmm. Aquinas do, which is just say, God eternally decrees that creation will come into existence at such and such time yeah. in order to get that. So that's one way to do it. Um, there's another problem you might run into though, as well, because I, because I could always like be like, okay, I'll grant you this. Here's this other change though that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like God's knowledge is going to change though, right? Because he's going to be going from knowing, hey, I exist alone. That's totally cool to, ooh, hey, I exist with a created universe. That's totally cool. Uh, I'm not the creator. I am the creator. Um, it seems like there's going to have all these kind of changes in his knowledge. I think that's, that's man, that's good. Because even if he said eternally, I'm going to I'm gonna know at this time, there's still like that, the aspect of knowing at that time. Yes. So I could know if, if I had omniscience, I could know tomorrow that I will know what it's like to eat a uh, Portillo's hot dog. Yeah. But then like when I eat that hot dog, I, it might be like a quality experience and you could say God doesn't have those kind of experiences unless you're Sebzebski and then mm-hmm. God has omni-subjective you know, quality. Right, yeah, yeah. But okay, so that's that's my own kind of muddled thing. Uh, sure. Maybe we could talk about that later sometime. But yeah. um, if we have enough time, I'd love to talk about uh, William Lane Craig and, mm-hmm. and maybe Ord, but but particularly Craig, uh, do we have, do you think we have time to cover yeah, that? Can, cover your stuff at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think okay. we could do that. Um, so, okay. So, so what I did was in the paper, I've got, I identify these different kinds of problems. So we've got yeah. the sooner objection. Uh, that's pretty bad. You've got these uh, revenge of these creational problems. That's pretty bad. Uh, and then, and then you've also like, you've got this um, eternal creation view where it's like, what could you possibly be saying really when you're saying God eternally creates, but the universe is not co-eternal. Right. So Craig's like, I can deal with some of these. Here we go. I'm going to be just like Augustine. I'm going to say, God creates the universe, uh, ex nihilo. And I'm going to be just like Augustine and say, God creates time, because I got this relational theory of time. And I'm going to be just like Augustine and say, presentism is true. Ooh, but I'm going to give you a plot twist, though. God is timeless sans creation, so without the universe, but he's temporal with the universe. Yeah. And so when it comes to the sooner objection, Craig's like, could God have created the universe sooner? Well, no, because God was timeless without the universe. So he's going to be able to give the exact same kind of response that Augustine gave. And they're like, yeah. well, that's cool. Did God change when the universe uh, came into existence in all the ways that like I developed against uh, Augustine's timelessness? Craig's like, well, yeah, of course. That's totally fine. Because I am I think God's temporal with creation. Mm-hmm. So he's just like, yeah, uh, accept those premises. They're true. Uh, they're great. Uh, so God does change because God is temporal, like, like with the universe. Yeah. And so he's like, no big deal. No problem. Uh, and so it seems like he can get out of all those kind of like worries that are raised up against Augustine. Yeah. But then I'm like, well, okay, hang on, hang on. Let me, let me, let me throw some, some shade your way too. The, this claim that God exists sans, uh, like timeless sans creation uh, and temporal with creation. A lot of people have been like, what on earth does that mean? Like Bill, like you're really bright. You're like really good at justifying all your views. I mean, you've written insane amounts of stuff justifying all your views. And Paul Helm says, there's this moment of odd silence on yeah. Craig's part here. <laughs> like Craig's yeah. normally like, you know, give great, given all these justifications for his view. But when it comes to this, he's oddly silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's like, what does that mean? And so, uh, so Helm tries to like articulate a couple different ways of what that could mean. And he's like, none of those work because if God's really timeless, it can't be that, well, God's timeless state is simultaneous with like the causing of the universe right. because that's a temporal relation. And, and Helm's like simultaneity, temporal relation of God's really timeless. Can't have that. Yeah. Can't be temporally prior because that's that's that you know then you got time yep. uh you can't have that once well, logically prior what does that really mean yeah can you actually have a logically prior if you're talking about you know actual states of affairs where god nothing else and then god with stuff 
is that really a logical priority? No, because logical priorities seem like my shopping list. Like, you know, I'm like, I know I need to go to this aisle to like pick up that thing and this other aisle to pick up that thing. And it's all written, written down like there on my, 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 my to-do list. So I've got a logical order of how to do those things, but the actual doing of those things is not, is not like just merely logical priority because yeah. those are like successive states of affairs. Mm-hmm. So what's left? Oh, I don't know. It's really mysterious. That seems crazy. That seems weird. And then I, uh, what I do uh, against Craig as well is I develop this argument against the relational theory of time and just go, maybe part of the problem here is this relational theory is, is doing some weird, funky stuff. Well, the relational theory says that time is, exists, if only, only if change exists, and that you've got to have, a, and it's just a relationship between events. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, well, tell me what an event is. Uh, and Ulrich Mayer, uh, who's this uh, contemporary philosopher of time, he identifies, I think it's like seven, eight different views on, on like what an event is. And in each and every single one of them, the existence of time is presupposed. Yeah. And so Mayer's like, well, you got this circularity problem here. Uh, so you're supposed to tell me events are more fundamental than time. And you're like, well, what is an event? You're an event is, well, the event is something happening out of time. And you're like, Whoa, 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 yeah. no, no, no. You're not supposed to have time in the story here. You've already got, you've already given me time. So you've got the circularity. And so it can run like an objection like that against Craig. So it's like Craig can avoid all, a lot of these problems that Augustine faced. So that's pretty cool. That's really great. Ooh, but now he's got this kind of like circularity problem. And uh, we all thought, what are we going to do with that? That's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, let's move on to the next person, which is then Tom Ward. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was really, we're making great time here, by the way. Mm-hmm. But the, the events I had like, uh, I had like a flashback of last year when I was, I was trying to, uh, a, I wrote a paper on God and facts and I wanted to, to kind of fuse Van Til and C.S. Lewis and their view of God as the fact of all facthood. And, and he's like, well, what are facts? Oh, well, they're states of affairs. Okay. What are states of affairs? And then we got into events and I was just like, just bogged down in this mire of uh-huh. everyone being like, yeah. Cause it, you get down to this concept and you're like, what are we even talking about now? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. So that was, mm-hmm. that was, uh, you really triggered me there, but uh, so yeah, it took me years to get to the bottom of this one too. Cause yeah, I was yeah. like, tell me what an event is like, Seriously. and then I'm like, wait, what's going on? So yeah. So yeah, this is, this is a weird rabbit holes you have to run down before you can yeah. eventually state it in a nice, neat, short way. And, and, and the conception, once you do get down to it, it's going to depend on the rest of their system. Mm-hmm. Um, who am I thinking of? Uh, Armstrong talks about, you mm-hmm. know, this world of state of affairs and it's like, is, he's making him, he's making facts concrete or states of affairs concrete, but that, but there's yeah. abstraction and, and it was just a, this crazy, crazy world. Uh, I wonder about the the, the relational view of time. Does that is that supported more from from science? Like, do do, do scientists hold? I know they don't get as deep into the the philosophy of science, but right. it seems to me like uh, when we're talking about um, you know relativity and stuff like that, it seems like that that would be a relational model. Do you, have you thought about that at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. When I ask physicists about when I when I've presented uh, to some different like physicists and yeah. different physics seminars, saying like here's the relational and here's the absolute theory, a lot of them are just kind of like I don't really like either of those. And then they do the same thing with like a theory versus b theory and this kind of okay. stuff. They're like I don't like any of that. Okay. Um, but so what's going on typically though is uh, they're not even interested necessarily in if time exists, if and only if change exists. What they're really interested in is if I can measure it, then mm-hmm. it exists. So there's, uh, there's this one article. Um, oh, I cannot for life. me remember the name of the physicist who considers this question of what's what uh, some people call like the deletion argument. Mm-hmm. And so imagine like you got the universe existing uh, and then uh, one by one, all the different atoms in the universe start being deleted, just annihilated from existence. 
And then all that's left at some point is just one single atom just floating in the void. Hmm. It's changing its position um, for like spatial positions. It's, you know, still like floating on is time still exist. And this one physicist was just, who was writing this article was going, I don't know, maybe, but I can't measure it. So I guess I don't really care. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, right. And so when I've talked to some different physicists, that's usually like, if I can't come up with a clock, if I can't yeah. develop a clock, I don't care. Yeah. It's really yeah. like really, really pragmatic. That's why they went yeah. into science and not philosophy because they didn't right. want to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. So um, maybe we could, do you like, do you, do you want to cover the orange stuff or? or yeah, no, because I think he does some interesting stuff okay, that comes back to some of the problems that we had for, uh, for, for Craig uh, okay. and, or well, actually for, more for Augustine. So I, what I do in the section on Ord is I just go, I'll just ignore the, this uh, problem for the relational theory of time. Um, but I know like Ord's like, like Tom, he's like, he affirms that view and he wants to affirm presentism and he wants to affirm that God creates time. And he wants to affirm this kind of like relational theory. And he wants to say that God's temporal. And so when I, those, those problems I pointed out for Craig's view where God's timeless sans creation, temporal with creation, Ord's like, I don't have that problem. God's always, always temporal. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's timeful, I think is, is, is the main phrase that Tom Ord uses. And, and so it's like, okay, well, that weird puzzle that we had for Craig, you know, Tom Ord's doing pretty good with that. Yeah. All the problems for creation that, uh, that we had with, uh, with Augustine, Tom's like, oh, I don't have any of those problems. And I'll do you one better. Uh, that problem for eternal creation. Um, you know, if God's eternally causing the, something to exist, then it eternally, ex- it eternally exists. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom's like, well, yeah, of course. Uh, creation ex nihilo, that's false. Get rid of that. Uh, panentheism all the way. You know, God's always existing with the universe of some sort. God is yeah. eternally the creator and not in some, some weird, like, you know, I swear he's really eternally the creator, but like, it just, just kind of happens to be the case. The universe <laughs> doesn't always exist. Like, some words, like, I gave you the real, I, I gave you an eternal creator. You said you wanted one, I gave you one. So he's got all that kind of stuff going on. And that that's how he gets there's no sooner objection because he does have yeah. eternal creation, but yeah. it's it's panentheism. So yeah. yeah, so there's bullets to bite and he bites a, a pretty big yeah. bullet there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Now what I think uh Tom Ward's view runs into, there's a couple different kinds of problems he could run into. One of which is um like Kalam style kind of arguments. Hmm. So is it possible to traverse an in an actual infinite number of moments? And myself and William and Craig and a lot of others want to say, no, you can't actually tra- to reverse an actual infinite. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, okay, well then you're going to run into this view because if God's always creating it in the eternal past, like, you know, so it seems like, seems like you're going to have some kind of infinite uh, past. And then, so you're going to traverse an actual infinite. And that's and, one serious problem. Well, so for listeners who, do, who don't know about infinite regress, uh, that, that would mean like if he's, uh, infinitely back into the past creating then how could he ever get here how could we ever exist in this moment right now if you have an eternity to to, to traverse if it goes back you know or yeah. maybe not eternity but whoa, whoa, ta- it seems like an in, yeah imminently yeah infinitely and so you could ask god like god what were you doing before this moment and he's like well at the previous moment i was doing this and they're like what were you doing before that and he's like well the previous moment i was doing this and you keep asking and asking and asking do you ever get to like a stopping point mm-hmm. or and you well if it's an infinite you you wouldn't yeah. and you're like well how did we get here then because i can't i can't just keep going you know mm-hmm. or, or think of it this way like you're, you're like your little kids on the school ground uh, on the play on the playground and you ask your friend like i double dog dare you you can't count to infinity you know and, and they're like, no, watch me. I'll try. And you're like, one, two, three. Well, you can't get to infinity. You can't yeah. like, you can't get through infinity through like addition. Yeah. And so you all these kinds of problems we're pointing to is you can't traverse an actual infinite. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one type of problem uh, that, okay. that Ord's views faces. Okay. Um, the other main problem that I point out for Ord is it seems like it's going to go up against a really intuitive causal principle, which is that causes are always prior to their effects. Mm-hmm. 
So if God's always existing with the universe of some sort, ah. it's because he's causing it. Well, but if his, if causes are always prior to their effects, well, then he shouldn't always be existing with, with the universe of some sort because he should be prior to it at yeah. some point. But they're together. They're exactly the same yeah. time. Always, yeah, exactly. So he's like, well, maybe it's simultaneous causation. Yeah. Uh, not, um, there are people who affirm that view. A lot of philosophers of time really, really don't like it, but it's a view you could affirm. Yeah, it's that's a tricky one to think it through. Is. Like, what does that even mean? Is that still creation or mm-hmm. even, even like emanation? Mm-hmm. Like that has a, a there's a prior and then there's afterwards. You know, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's really that's a really good point. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it just invites like in Psalms working. He's he's very much aware of the yeah. the infinity problem, um, and and I think and I know he's actively like trying to work on that, trying to come up with an answer to that. I don't remember if he's actively working on uh, this causal principle like problem. Um, okay. I know I've pointed out to him before, and he's like, "Could I go the simultaneous?" I'm like, "You can." I don't like it, but yeah, you don't <laughs> yeah. have to. But that's but that's not a reason necessarily to go against it, just because I just I disapprove, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Man, that's good. I like it. I like it more when you go at word. I like that. that I want to chase that. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's let's move on to to the identification view, mm-hmm. and uh, and then get into uh, to your specific. So you you hold this view, right? You're an identification theorist. Or... Well, okay. So when I first started coming up with this view, like a couple of years ago, I, I thought it was nuts, and <laughs> and then I um, presented it at a at a conference in Slovakia, and people there were like, "Yeah, okay, that seems to work," and I was like. Okay. And then I presented it like a, a little bit, a couple months later in Vienna and they were like, yeah, that, yeah. Okay. That seems really cool. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I'm not crazy. Yeah. And then I was like, Isaac Newton performed this view, but he had a mental breakdown. So is that he really like the like, or whatever, right? Didn't he, didn't he, yeah, well, yeah, he had a, well, he had a nervous breakdown at one point, but then he became like the, like the treasurer for like the, for the United Kingdom after that. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll have a nervous breakdown and then I'll be like in charge of the, like the British yeah. bank and like rerolling the money. <laughs> so maybe, yeah. Like, yeah. So come up with some crazy views. That's fine. And well, then, he, he thought it was less, it was like less stressful to manage all the money for the whole country. <laughs> ever. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I I would find that even more stressful than doing philosophy. But, yeah. Well, you got to figure yeah. out, you know, was this pre or post uh, nervous breakdown? Because it was pre or golden, or unless that was what caused his breakdown. I don't think it's what caused his breakdown, but I, but his work on this topic was prior to his okay. his breakdown. Okay. Yeah. So so well, you know. Well, yeah. What what is what is uh, time on this view? Yeah. So this view is going to say we're going to go with this uh, absolute theory of time. Mm-hmm. And, and so the way I articulate the paper is like times is like, it's this uncreated substance. It's this eternal substance that it's, it's a natured entity that makes change possible. It is responsible it's, uh, for the, it's like the source of moments. And it's the thing that unifies a series of moments. So I've got these three roles that time plays, okay. making change possible, being the source of moments, and then being the thing that unifies a series of moments. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, if you want to make God like, uh, you know, like identified with time in some kind of way, maybe it's a divine, divine attribute. And I list out a couple of different thinkers who say this stuff, hmm. like Nicole Orsami, who says that God's timeless, uh, TF Torrance, who says that God's temporal, Isaac Newton, Samuel Clark, who also think God's temporal. So I'm like, you can be timeless or temporal on this view, supposedly. I, but yeah, but yeah, I don't know God how the timeless one works. I, I didn't catch that. I, I saw Torrance's and I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I align with more with Torrance, though he's a Bardian and that, that irks me too. But uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but do you know how, how does that make sense to be uh, on, a, on a timeless view that, that time is an attribute of God? I, I don't know because when I've seen it done historically, it's just kind of mentioned and they just kind of move on. 
Okay. They don't really develop it. And that was deeply frustrating for me. And that's one of the, one of the many motivations for this paper and yeah. for making this part of like my next book project is going, I need to develop these views and see what they look like. Yeah. If people are just kind of like just wildly gesturing towards this view, yeah, then that's not really helpful. Let's put something more concrete on the table and see if it's an actual live option. Yeah. That, that, that timeless, that's initially I'm like, yeah, I, I would, I, because of my, my theological leanings, I would want mm-hmm. to say God is timeless. And I would also want to put, you know, time as an attribute. I just don't see how it works. So yeah, I, I'd be interested to see as you think through that more and mm-hmm. see if that if that does work. I, I don't see it initially, but yeah, maybe. It seems pretty bad to be like, time's an attribute of God, but he's timeless. Yeah. It, it like, it just seems like on this a, purpose absurd. Right. Like, it's a potential in him. It's not actuated. Or if it is, then yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. So, so that's why I didn't bother developing it. Also, because yeah. this paper is, is way too long. And so, it's like, <laughs> if I'm going to find a journal that's going to publish it, I can't have something like that in there. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, okay. So... So then there's some, some questions that, that arise, right? So we talked about what time is, um, how can God be in time mm-hmm. and does God change when he creates? Yeah. And so since the way I developed the identification view in the paper, I'm like, I'm just going to focus on divine temporality. So they're already going to say God changes when he creates. Yeah. So that's already built into the, the version that I develop. So he, he's not always ex- uh, existing with the universe. Then he's like, "Hey, I want to do some stuff." Creates a universe, and now he's existing with the universe. Do you do you parse out? Um, well, first, did, was there any kind of trepidation when you first said that God changed when you came to that, or maybe you already had that intuition beforehand? Oh, before writing this paper, yeah. But you when know, like, I when, when you first uh, like came to it, right before mm-hmm. when, when you first said like, "Okay, I think God changes." Yeah, that was hard. I didn't okay. like that. Okay, oh, I hated that. I absolutely hated it because uh, <laughs> I, I remember like reading through um, like William and Craig stuff and some mm-hmm. others, and I was just like. Well, this doesn't work because then God's going to be changing. Yeah, all changes for the better or worse. So, like you know, God's going to be getting better or worse. That that's not right. Yeah, because I was still I was still assuming a bunch of different like uh, classical assumptions. Um. So yeah, no, I I didn't I didn't like it at all. Uh, yeah. When I so that would have been like when I was an undergrad and I was I was, I was first kind of trying to dig in deeper into these topics. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Well, so that that um you you do affirm that God's a perfect being, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so. Just, just for the listeners who who are super triggered, um, <laughs> how how can how can God be a perfect being and undergo change? Because you just brought it up, right? Like that's mm-hmm. like the the one of the initial things that if God's changing, He's changing from better to worse. Then He's He's not perfect anymore. Or if He's getting better, or so so you're having to say something like the change does not affect His perfection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I do is so there's this assumption that I, in my first book, uh, the end of the timeless God, I call the Platonic assumption which is that all changes for the better or worse. Yeah. You don't find it in the Bible. You can find it in Plato and then you can find it in tons of Christian theologians throughout the classical tradition. They just like throw it in there. Like, it's just like, like the Lord baby Jesus himself said it, yeah. you know? And I'm like, yeah. mm, he didn't. And instead what you see on in the Bible is God's constantly changing in all sorts of different ways. So what's, what are we going to do? And so I'm like, well, just reject that assumption. And so here's one way to do it. You just come up with a case where there's some kind of change takes place where things are not getting better or worse. Yeah. And then you can go, all you, you just need one example of it. That's it. Uh, to show that that principle is false, that all changes for the better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have a, an example on hand? That you- yeah. Yeah. So uh, imagine that there's just, there's a possible world where there's just two atoms existing in the void. Mm-hmm. And so they're just like, you know, next to each other. Uh, and then at the next moment they change positions. And so they, just, you know, instead of going, being to the left of the, the first atom, like, you know, the second one's now to the right of the, of the first atom. Yeah. That's it. Well, and I'm like, that's not better or worse. 
I mean, Proverbs says, uh, you know, stick to the right because the fool goes to the left or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there, there we go. There we go. That's okay. a good rejoinder. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Okay. Um, so, all right. I just wanted to, to, to mm-hmm. toss that out there yeah, for, yeah, for anyone yeah. listening. Yeah, that's good. I'll, I'll want to mm-hmm. think on that one too, but it's good to know that, uh, that it hurt when you first oh, had, yeah, to, had yeah. to go through and affirm that. Um, okay. So actually another thing. So do you make a distinction that, that your, your first book, the, the end of the timeless God, um, mm-hmm. That was your dissertation, right? Is that a? Uh, it's it's a adaptation. It's my, basically my dissertation on steroids, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I recommend grabbing that one. I've heard a lot about it. I need, I need to pick it up myself. Um, are you? Do you make a distinction between like like intrinsic and extrinsic change? Like, w- would you say that God changes extrinsically but not intrins- intrinsically, or or is He actually changing like in His essence or being? So you can talk about. Uh, intrinsic and extrinsic changes, but there's also essential and accidental changes. Sure. Yeah. So intrinsic changes are just like things like, um, like I move my arm a particular way. Well, that's an intrinsic change because I, I get something I did. I changed my mental states. I changed like my, my bodily states. It's all yeah. intrinsic to me. Yeah. My extrinsic changes are things like they're like relational changes. Mm. Um, so like, like say like my, my wife walks by, well, she's gone from like being like behind me to being in front of me. And so I've changed yeah. like extrinsically and that's, yeah. you know, uh, so I want to say that God undergoes both of those because okay. God's like, what's happening right now? Oh, I know what's happening right now. Ooh, what's happening right now? Oh, that changed. So now I need, so his mental states are changing. Those are, his, those are in, intrinsic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. His, his mental states, like mental states are intrinsic to, to minds. And yeah. then his actions are changing because he's, he's like, he wasn't always creating Moses. And then at some point he's like, Hey, Moses, 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 come over here. Oh no, I want to do some stuff. Uh, I've got, I've got a burning bush over here to like, you know, let's, let's talk about how to like do this whole Exodus thing. Yeah. And actions, those are intrinsic to agents. And, and so if those are new actions that God's performing, then God's changing intrinsically. Yeah. And, and so um, that, that's like the, like God acting out uh, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, um, in uh, Christophanies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But also you would, you would say, because you deny impassibility that God has actually acted on as well. Yeah. So, and that's a different kind of change that I would affirm that not everybody wants to affirm, which right. is God's going to be changing affectively. Yeah. So your emotions uh, are, emotions are evaluate, felt evaluations of situations. Um, so when you, you have an object and you're evaluating it to be a particular way, and then there's something that's like to have that evaluation. Yeah. So you see a dog that's barking and it's scary, you know, you're evaluating it to be scary and there's something that's like to be scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so if God has emotions, um, the classical tradition says God has emotions. He's got pure happiness, um, but they don't want to say it's grounded in anything else other than himself. Right. Uh, whereas passivists, they're like, well, no, God, God can be changed. He can have emotions about other things and be affected um, by by other things. And so I'm like, right, that's okay. You know, the Bible's like, you know, God's uh, God rejoices when sinners repent. Um, mm-hmm. God gets really sad when uh, terrible things happen. Um, when God sees the Israelites doing some really horrible stuff, he's like. Yeah, I, I told you not to sacrifice children. Why did you think I would, why would you think I would be pleased by that? You know, yeah. God's, he's outraged. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, he's going to be, he's affected. He's, he's responding to what's happening in the world. Do you, do you also, um, do you hold to, I, this might, this is a loaded term, but do you hold the foreknowledge? God has exhausted foreknowledge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm confused why, if, if God knows everything that's going to happen, um, how he would have, genuine reaction like how you'd be mm-hmm. affected on so he knows that the israelites are going to do this bad thing yeah. he um on my view 
you know, I'm, I'm a, a Calvinist, so that that's going to be different. But on your view, I don't know where you stand. Are you Arminian? Do you fall nicely into the camp anywhere? I really like, I really like my Molinism, um, okay. but like which soteriological schemes? I don't know because I don't like I don't like most of these uh, theories of salvation. I, f- I find like a bunch of holes in them, so I'm like, yeah. somebody sort that out for me. <laughs> uh, somebody sort it out, and you can come through and just shred them and give them all sorts of dilemmas. Or hopefully, like, go with the well done, good and faithful servant. I can, yeah, I, can, I, can say that. I would like that. I would really yeah. like that. Yeah. So please, somebody. Do that. Yeah. Well, so you have you have uh, exhaustive foreknowledge, and so God knows um, that the Israelites are going to do this. However, you you work that out. Uh, if you want to, you know, uh, if you want to use Molinism, there middle knowledge. So God knows that, but then he, you're saying that he genuinely still responds to it in time and space. Yeah. I, so you talked about being scared and, and right. So we're human. We don't have exhausted foreknowledge, but if I knew tomorrow around the corner, this dog's going to come bark at me and I knew like how it would feel, how I would, if I had that, you know, quality, quality, qualia experience already, that knowledge of the qualia, could I still even really like be scared in that moment? You know, like, yeah. You- so yeah, this is a really good objection. And I've only started working on it a couple months ago. Okay. Uh, so William Hasker has this objection. So he's like, say you want to affirm the biblical view. Because he's God an open theist, is- right? Yeah. So yeah, Hasker's an open theist. That makes sense so, that he would bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he, this is what he's trying to do. So he's like, you know, say you're like me. You want to affirm the biblical view that God, you know, is is passable because this, this is Hasker talking. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, but say you still, you're not, you're not happy with your, you don't want to be an open theist like me. Yeah. You want to, you're going to affirm your, your foreknowledge. And then you can point out to various people. So like Bruce Ware, who's a Calvinist, mm-hmm. he wants to get rid of impassibility and he wants to affirm, um, you know, like this, like, you know, some kind of middle knowledge, some kind of Calvinistic story uh, of middle knowledge. How do you get that? That's yeah. another story for another day. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but he wants to have his foreknowledge. And so Haskell's like, okay, well, how are you really going to get God being genuinely surprised or really genuinely upset? And he's so, so he re- creates this, this sort of problem for anyone who wants to affirm passability and foreknowledge. Right. Uh, Richard Rice does the same thing in his recent book on the future of open theism. And I'm like, hang on. I think there's some different assumptions about time and some qualia and all sorts of stuff here. Ooh, you're not really thinking through. Yeah. So if I've got foreknowledge, I know what will happen mm-hmm. and I might even have tenseless knowledge as well of like things happen at these particular dates. Um, but I could also have tense facts too, that I need to be responding to of what's happening now. Okay. Now, if you tell me, um, you know, like some really horrible things are going to happen in the year 2525. I'm, I'm going to I might be a little bit anxious about that kind of stuff mm. um, leading up to it. I know it's going to happen. And I got to deal with that though, uh, because I've got, I know that it happens in 2525, but there's all these, all these tense facts of you're one day closer to that event. Ooh, you're one day closer to that event. Ooh, you're one day, you know, and so yeah. like all this anxiety is building right now. What are you going to do with that? Um, and so I can give you a bunch of these different kind of cases. Here's another case uh, where somebody could have some kind of foreknowledge in some meaningful sense, but still have a whole bunch of different deep emotional responses. Imagine somebody who is the director of a play. A good director is going to have perfect tenseless knowledge of the entire outline of the play. At this point, uh, you know, that ooh, that person better be entering from stage left. Yeah. At this other point, this other actor needs to be coming at, you know, and be at the thrust. And this other person needs to be doing, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they've even actually gone through the whole play a million times. But when it comes to opening night, like a good director is going to be able to sit back and just watch this thing unfold and really enjoy the beauty of the play and be moved by it. Because there's a difference between knowing the tenseless facts of yeah. what, that, that things happen at particular times and actually it, having the experience of responding to a tensed fact of this is happening right now. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I, and I, I do like the, uh, so I wrote my master's thesis on the authorial analogy uh, for, mm-hmm. for 
God world relation. And oh, sure. I like that. And, and I like the play analogy too. It's, it's, it's a close one. Um, so, so let's say you wrote the play, yeah. you directed the play. Yeah. You know that um, your protagonist is going to get stabbed in the neck in the third act. Uh, you, you exhausted, like you've gone through it and through it and through it. Um, I might be frozen here. Can you still hear me? Yeah. You're, you're just, your screen's just frozen for a second. That would probably come back. All right. I'm using my uh, my GoPro for the first time to stream here, and it's mm-hmm. kind of weird. So I might just you might be stuck with that look there. Okay. Uh, classic Parker. So um so, Ga uh, the the author of the play and director. You know he's all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still can, when he's watching the play happen. He's still surprised in the third act when his protagonist gets stabbed in the neck. Mm-hmm. Is it? It's a different type of surprise, right? It's like. Yeah. Yeah, so Bruce Ware deals with this one, and so and he says uh, there's some certain passages that talk about surprise, um, and he's like, well, there's a certain sense in which you tell like your your children don't do this, and then they do it, and you still, so maybe it's not surprise exactly, but yeah. it's more of like shock, disappointment, these kind of emotions. Okay, so I kind of I kind of think I think if I'm going to be really like try to be really technical, I would just want to say I don't think God can be surprised. Okay, like, that just seems that just seems false because uh, yeah. God really has exhausted foreknowledge. If I'm going to talk about being surprised, God being surprised, I'm like I'm I have to be speaking metaphorically or figuratively. I prefer not to do that, so I'm just going to say he's not surprised. Yeah, is he shocked uh, in some kind of sense? Is he disappointed in some kind of sense? Oh, you bet, because um, he because he that's what you see in the Old Testament. He's like, I told you, no child sacrifice. What are you doing? I, I, I told you, no child sacrifice. Why? I told you that ages ago. Why are you doing it now? Like, come on, um, yeah. he's upset about that. Yeah. Okay. So so you just yeah you bite that the, that one and say that's fine. Yeah. I don't need that one. Yeah. There's certain ones on this model that I, I that that don't work. That I it's okay though. I don't need it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay, man, this is good. I really like this. Yeah, this is uh, so. Um, how about how do you face the sooner objection? Does it arise like in a, in a particular way, or is it just you, you're able to totally get rid of it? I think I can totally get rid of it, but it's it's. I think it is a serious problem for people who affirm the identification view in general. Okay. So, so Samuel Clark, Isaac Newton, when Leibniz developed his sooner objection, he was in dialogue with Samuel Clark who affirms this identification view. Okay. And so it's, it's really designed right at, uh, right at uh, Clark and Clark uh, assumes the first, uh, like there's the, both assumptions, like God's perfectly rational and that God could have created the universe sooner. Okay. Uh, because on, on, on Clark and Newton's view, they think that the passage of time is just necessarily going. So it, so time, no matter what thing, what, what else is happening, time has to go from moment to moment, to moment, to moment, to moment, to moment, constantly. Yeah. yeah. You can now have like a, a pause where, you know, it doesn't have to go to the next moment. Uh, and, and so I'm like, that's, that's what's like generating this problem. So there, before God creates the universe, there's just a whole bunch of different, like a whole huge series of moments. Yeah. And, and so Clark's got to try to come up with, he's got to kind of do some fancy stuff with perfect rationality to avoid the problem. Whereas I'm like, well, why do I have to say there's an infinite number of moments before the universe? Why can't I do something like what Swinburne does in the, in the more recent edition of Coherence of Theism and just be like, there's just one, one single moment. Hmm. before creation uh it's a moment that never began to exist and it comes to an end well when well when 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 god changes when he does stuff so there's a moment which is a way things are but could be subsequently otherwise the way things are is god by himself with all his essential properties his perfect powers perfect freedom things could be subsequently otherwise because god's got free will he could do a bunch of stuff and when things become subsequently otherwise is you know when god performs an action creates a universe 
And so I can be like, there is no sooner because it's just a single moment before, before the universe. So I wonder from a Trinitarian perspective though, like, mm, does that mean that the, the ad intra God's not the father and the son aren't like communing in the spirit? Cause, cause if they're mm-hmm. communing, it would seem like it would need more moments. Than right. Just one. That's the claim that from some people, uh, so I haven't, I haven't dealt with that objection directly yet. Yeah. Um, but some of the ones I've, I've gotten pushback from is, well, you're going to say like God's having some kind of emotion before. And I'm like, yeah. And you're like, well, how could it, that's not enough time. And I'm like, <laughs> well, if, if you're going to allow like God to be like timelessly in a state of perfect bliss and perfect happiness, well, there's not, not, there's literally not enough time for that. I guess if God's yeah. timeless. So if you're going to allow that for God's eternal timeless moment, why won't you allow it for a single temporal moment? Mm. Okay. Um, and so the same thing with if people want to talk about like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having some kind of, you know, amazing, loving communion uh, in this timeless, eternal state. Well, there's literally not enough time for that. Mm-hmm. And if, so if you don't th- think that's a problem, then you can't you can't object to my view. Yeah. So it's a little bit like a tuco quay, like, well, it's sauce for the goose. Sauce exactly. The so I'm like, if you want to object to me, you got to say some other things that are going to generate these other problems. Yeah. Uh, like the sooner objection or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, how about, how about the relation between um, absolute time, which you, I don't know that we need to like go in on what it is, what you can say. It's an attribute of God. You can say it's the internal relate. I think Van Hooser kind of follows Bart and says, it's like a, it, it it's from the internal communication uh, in the Godhead. And it's like, it's part of the action, but it's not like an attribute, whatever you want to say, if you want to ground it in God, that's, that's different than the created time uh, in created reality. Right. And so um, <clears throat> what is you, maybe Clark said this or, or someone else, uh, Leibniz, someone that God, all time is like grounded in God, but, do you have this distinction between created and uncreated time? I used to. Um, So in my first book, I do develop that distinction. I now think it's a meaningless distinction because you've got time, just whatever time is. And I give you a story of what that is. And then you've got um, what happens in time. Yeah. And so the, the, the distinctions between like God's uncreated time and created time and, or metaphysical time and physical time. Yeah. When you start working them out, all that's really going on is there's time. And then when God creates a universe, time gets, or a series of moments gets, uh, get some extra properties. So, so for instance, um, you might say that there's no metrication. There's no, um, there's no way to develop a clock prior to the created universe because you need like consistent laws of nature and consistent changes in order to create a clock. Hmm. So there's literally no amount of, of time that takes place before the created universe. Yeah. And I'm like, that seems fine. That's cool. And when God creates a universe, what is he doing? Well, he's creating a clock. Um, huh. So on this identification view, God's not a time maker because he's not creating time, but he's a watchmaker. Yeah. He's, he's, he's creating a clock. He's creating this, the conditions for a clock, the conditions for metrication. Man, that's interesting. So that, that seems like it's, it's shifting back to the, um, to the other view of time to uh, what's it called? Uh, well, the relational theory. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what I've got going on. Okay. So it's something I don't, I didn't make a, a clear earlier. So with the relational theory, you've just got these events or moments, and then those are the things that generate time. Uh, Cause it's just oh, a relationship. Yeah. Right. The moment on the absolute theory, there's a distinction or very clear distinction between time and moments of time. Okay. Uh, and so time is, you know, that natured entity that makes change possible. It's the source of moments and unifies a series of moments. A moment though is a way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. 
Okay. Um, or it's a proposition like entity that describes the way things are, but could be subsequently otherwise. Um, there's a couple different ways you could kind of develop it, but that's, but it's a moment. And so time is responsible for the existence of moments and then is responsible for a series of moments. And okay. so what you have with God is he's responsible for the existence of the very first moment, um, which is the moment where he exists without creation in the sense that there's a way God is mm-hmm. and there's a way he could be otherwise because he's got free will. So God just simply existing with whatever attributes he has. That's a, that's, that's the way things are. That's could be subsequently otherwise. Yeah. You, that's, you might've just snuck in something on me. The, uh, mm. God, oh, yeah, yeah. God could have been otherwise. Like, um, so does, does, mm-hmm. does God he's got free will. But does his free will, is he able to like change his nature by his free will? No, 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 okay. that, no. He can change in respect to what I want to do with this free will. Cool, cool, cool. Do you want to okay. create some stuff? Do you want to create some angels? Yeah. Do you want to create a multiverse? Sure. No, okay. multiverse is weird. That gets Rick and Morty kind of stuff. I don't want to do that. I'll create a single <laughs> universe. No, like, God's got options. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And that's, that's important too, to avoid, to avoid moral, moral collapse. Cause if he doesn't have options and yeah. does create, then all of this necessarily happened. Right, because the modal collapse is when either everything becomes contingent or everything becomes necessary. Uh, the yeah. modal collapse arguments that I developed is where everything becomes necessary. Yeah, and there's literally no other way the world could be, and so that's yeah, that's 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 pretty bad. Yeah, that's that's yeah. super bad. Um, yeah. So actually, the the contingent option can you mm-hmm. can you explain that real quick? There's there's a couple different people. Um, this guy, what was his name? Is uh, Bidi Rundle, I think is how you say his name. And he tried to like, he's try, he was trying to like develop uh, some responses to like um, some different cosmological arguments for the existence of God. And and so one way to go is just say, there's nothing that's necessary. Everything's contingent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so there's no need for a necessary being. Uh, why does stuff exist? Brute fact. That's, that's why. Um, so it, I think it's a very like, kind of ugly view of the universe, but you know, it's, it's, it's a view that some people affirm. But then there's some other people like uh, Timothy Williamson, who's like necessitarianism. That's awesome. Let's do that. And he's not, he doesn't have God in the picture, okay. um, but he's just like, yeah, everything's necessary. It's, that's fine. And there's a lot of other people have that kind of reaction though, going like, but I, I really could have wore a different shirt today. Yeah. I really could have like, just like sat in a slightly different spot. Like all these things seem possible. Like yeah. it really can't be, this cannot be the only way things are. Yeah. Just, yeah. Then you get the the quantum physicist in there, and they go, "Well, quantum indeterminacy," and you just wreck ship with all that weird stuff, right? But then they'll also give you this sort of story sometimes too. They're like, "All this indeterminacy, but all possibilities are actualized." So all the things in the universe, and you're like, "Ooh, you just brought in some determinism and yeah, modal collapse." And then all probabilities actually are a one, and then you generate these new problems that people are actually actually trying to work on. Going, it was supposed to give me all these probabilities, but if everything's a one, then everything's necessary. Yeah. Do. Yeah. So Alistair Wilson has a book uh, that came out recently on that, just trying to figure out how do we deal with that problem. Okay. Yeah. And that's great. Well, yeah. is there anything uh, else you wanted to follow up on on your view? Uh, I have a couple of just random questions at the end here, but I, I would love to hear uh, you tie it up for us if you need to. So I guess um, the identification view as I'm developing it is you've got God being temporal, God playing all the same roles that time would play, that absolute theory of time would play. And so that's why you can say, I identify time with God. And and I try to, what I'm trying to work on now is how to fill out all those different roles where I can say, God makes change possible. Yeah. He's powerful and free. There we go. Um, how's the source of moments? Well, he's the one who like makes things the way they are. Uh, and things could be subsequently otherwise because he creates beings with free will. Uh, and how does he unify a series of moments? Well, that depends on your theory of providence. Yeah. Um, that, that's so, a, yeah. That's yeah. a really good one. Yeah. Because I was just thinking maybe... 
if if you don't have a distinction between created and uncreated, it it and and the way you parsed out time that time is responsible. I'm not going to get the time. I'm not going to get the word right, but time is responsible for like moments or yes, is the okay. source of moments. The source of moments. So mm-hmm. God is the source of all these moments because God time is inter- um how would you say it? God is. You can say it's an attribute. Attribute, attribute. Yeah. 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 So since God is the source of that, it, it seems like um, maybe someone would want to bring up like uh, would want to pin you into, man, uh, what's Edward's view that everyone hates? It's like, a, Oh, so he's like an occasionalist occasionalism. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it depends. So, so moments are just, if, if moments are um, just like these proposition, like entities that could be either, realized or actualized yeah. um or just stay merely possible moments um because so so okay let's go with a determinist a fully deterministic calvinistic kind of story first mm-hmm. uh so before god creates the universe um he's got his natural knowledge which is his knowledge of his own nature and all the things he could possibly create mm-hmm. he doesn't have any free knowledge yet because he hasn't done anything yet uh, with his free yep. will so what will happen it's, it's indetermined mm-hmm. and then god goes all these different timelines of all the things that could happen next that one timeline that's the one i want I'm going to fully determine that timeline to happen. Yeah. And so now I've got this free knowledge. And so I've got this foreknowledge and, and you know, on you go. And, and so that's one way you could go with this. If you're, if you want to be a temporalist and have this kind of identification view. Uh, and so you could have this fully determined. So you could even be an occasionalist if you want, uh, like Edward says, you could have all that on, yeah. on, on this view. Uh, and that's, I don't like that, yeah. but it's consistent with the view that I lay out. Okay. Um, but you could be a Molinist too, or an open theist, uh, or a panentheist. Like see, I'm, I want to try to develop all the options for, if you want to be affirm divine temporality, what are all the different ways you can make God, um, responsible for a series of moments and unify a series of moments. Here's all these different stories you could tell. Okay. And so, yeah. Okay. 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 So you don't have to have like, you know, to be is to be perceived like God, God viewing reality is what makes it happen or anything like you can have cre- Oh, so you're thinking like idealism. Well, that's the next step I'm thinking, because I'm thinking if time is, if there's no um, like creator creature distinction mm-hmm. um, between the times, right? So I, I want to have a created time and uncreated time. You've thought about this way more and you've, you've let go of that view. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, well, what are the different options then? And, and I'm thinking, how is it that this uncreated time is like grounding or, or every moment that I'm experiencing right now is rooted in this attribute of god's time you know like i i don't it seems weird it seems like yeah maybe we're participating in the divine nature right now or something right um so so one thing might be happening is you might not be thinking fully of the distinction between time and and moments um that's possible um also there's something to be said about like if a moment is like really just this propositional like entity that describes the way things are but could be subsequently otherwise Uh um well when a moment is is actualized or concrete there's the stuff that happens at that moment yeah uh and they're not identical to the moment but like it seems like the maybe like they're essential to the content of a particular moment so what happens at a moment is what whatever you want whatever you're doing yeah um and so it depends what kind of universe god creates is going to determine the kind of content of what happens in 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 the timeline in the moments so if you want to go with like like a william hasker kind of story an open theist story you can be like well god gives all these creatures these intrinsic powers and gives them the freedom and autonomy to do whatever they want with those powers within, you know, some kind of structured world. Yeah. So what, what's the content of that? Well, the content is whatever those creatures freely do as I sustain them in existence mm. from moment to moment to moment. 
Sustaining an existence. Okay. And I think what, yeah, I probably wasn't understanding the, the moments and time distinction. Moments, I didn't explain it very well at the beginning. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, that's, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm all over the place here today, but I think I like the, the moment distinction because that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking of as, as created time. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it's just less precise than, than what you've said. So moment, a moment exists on its own, like out in creation, like there is a creation that's separate from God, right? So we're not panentheists oh, okay. or pantheists or anything like that. There is, there is these moments that exist and God's sustaining work is what, well, God's, God's creation work. And I would say the decree, I don't know if you'd, you'd want to say decree, but, um, God has ordained what's going to going to happen. Yeah, you're you like some Molinism in there, so that's good. Mm-hmm. So God or, ordained what's going to happen. He's created it, and then in His uh, providence, He is bringing that about, and He's mm-hmm. actual actualizing those different moments. Yeah, and so that aspect of God's providence, of which time is uh, an attribute of Him, in Him doing that, He is bringing about the the succession of moments. Yeah, so He's bringing so so you can have the decree. Well, the creed just tells you that's what what's what's going to happen. Gonna happen yeah. Um, and then went. God, yeah, then God's going to providentially bring about the decree. Yeah, and, and so when the providential bringing about, that's when you get the succession of, yes. of moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's why I thought someone might push you on occasionalism because you have like uh-huh. these moments that are like you know I think they usually say it's like film, it's like an old film reel, and the, you know there's not actually change going on, but the reel being spun around. That's why. And I know that that's like a boogeyman, at least among TED students, where we don't sure. want to be occasionalists, right? And yeah. that's why I was thinking maybe that that would fit to you. But you're like, ah, if it does, whatever, I'm not an occasionalist. Right? Yeah, because it's, it's consistent with the view if you want it. Like, because yeah. so if you want to, if you really want to be like a like a Calvinist, um, well, okay, most Calvinists don't want occasionalism. Right. If you want to be a Calvinist like John Feinberg, you know, mm-hmm. then you can tell the like, sort of story I told. Um, if you want to be an occasionalist, uh, like some different thinkers in the Islamic tradition, you can do the same thing. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I, I'll come up with different objections to that. Um, yeah. But it depends what kind of, of things, it depends what kind of creatures God creates is, is really with the ultimate story. The content of those moments, yeah. what is God creating in uh, creating in those moments? Is yeah. God creating beings that he sustains in existence that have genuine causal power mm-hmm. or not? If you're an occasionalist, you're saying he doesn't create beings with actual genuine, genuine causal power. Whereas a typically Calvinist, Molinist, and open theist want to say he does and then you get all these fights of going, how, how did you really? Yeah. yeah. But so then you, basically you just go back to the, the standard fights between Calvinist. Molinist yeah. And, yeah, nope. yeah. That's good. Oh man. I really like it. Thanks for, for taking the time to, to help mm-hmm. me think through that. I do like that moment view. Um, and I don't want to be an occasionalist for all the evil problems and stuff like that. Sure. That pop up in <laughs> yeah. that, yeah, and all the craziness. Um, okay. So that's, that's really helpful, man. I like this project. So you said you're, you're going to be working, you're going to be making a book on this or, yeah. or, so that's the project that I'm doing at the Collegium for Advanced Studies in Helsinki right now. Is okay. So the, the working title for the book is From Divine Time Maker to Divine Watchmaker. And mm. so this Time Maker paper is a chunk of, I think it's chapter three. So what I do is I'm trying to lay out, here's the different models of God you might you might want to pick. Um, well, if you want to be a temporalist, what are your options? Well, you could pick you know some of these different models of God. What are you going to say now? Well, you got some other options. You could be a creationist. You could be an identification view. Here are all the different problems you're going to have to face, and here's how you might try to deal with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, what next? Uh, well, whew, if you want to be a temporalist, maybe you don't know what you. If you want to be a creationist or uh, or or identification view, but you're going to have some other problems though. What are those? Oh, there's some Trinity problems. Okay. How do we deal with that? Yeah. Here's some problems from Providence. How do we deal with that? And then I go into the second half of the book. I'm like, 
what ontology of time do I want? Do I want presentism? Do I want our a growing block? Do I want a, like a moving spotlight? Do you want some other like crazy hypertime stuff? Do you want, what, what do you want? And I'm like, all of these are going to cause problems for your doctrine of creation, your doctrine of providence, your doctrine of life after death. Yeah. Uh, except for presentism. That's what I want to say. Um, okay. And okay. So, I'm, so I'm currently trying to work all this out and go like presentism gives you all the things you want. Whereas these other views, they give you all these other problems that, you, that, that are just awful. You don't, you, you, you lose your creation ex nihilo. Of course, if you're a pantheist, you're going to go, I don't care. Right. Um, but you might lose your life after death. And I don't want that. I, I really want my life after death. I don't want to lose that. Yeah. Um, so trying to work out a bunch of these details is is what the, the big project is overall. Man, that sounds awesome. I can't wait for that. Uh, there's there's two follow-up questions I, mm-hmm. I'd love to, to end on. Um, one is, well, let's go with the other one first, but you don't know mm-hmm. what that is. So, uh, yeah. So um, what role does, does like the, the history of doctrine play in your constructive work? Um, because I, again, dude, I got like the historical theology and I got the philosophical theology and philosophy. And then like, can, I, they're all fighting in mm-hmm. my head. Right. And yeah, 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 some of the stuff you say, um, well, like uh, it seems like a lot of the, the tradition would, would hold to a B theory of time. Do you think that's fair or no? Oh, I think it's false. Uh, so that's one of the things okay. I do in the first book is go, uh, everyone keeps saying present is the only moment that exists. Uh, I don't, I can't, I, f- I can't find anybody outside of the Buddhist uh, tradition um, rough, uh, even considering the B theory until you get to the modern era. And then Emily Thomas has a new book she's working on right now where she's looking at the history of, um, of, of philosophy of time and more like in more uh, like the history of modern sex as it relates to philosophy of time. And so she thinks these questions about the ontology of time, like what moments of time exist. Yeah. She's like, everything was just being taken for granted until you get to, to like the modern era. Um, those kind of questions just weren't even really being asked in the Western world. Okay. And I think she's absolutely right. That really fits with uh, my understanding of things. That well, that would be really helpful then. Uh, mm-hmm. That'd be great. Um, like, I mean, everyone points to Boethius. A, a lot yeah. of people pointed to Augustine and that's yeah. why I was kind of surprised to, to read your stuff. I, I really liked what you said, but so, so she would say, and you would say Boethius is not holding to a B theory of time. Uh, she doesn't comment on Boethius in any of her work. Um, but I, I do, uh, I, just point out all these times where Boethius says the present is the only moment that exists. Man. And I'm like, and then he's like, and then he moves from there to say, uh, you know, in just the same way that presentism, uh, you know, like you exist in a, in a present now, God exists in eternal now. And so he uses, he moves straight from presentism to his understanding of timelessness to compare and contrast the two. And this is a very standard move throughout the tradition. Uh, yeah. So it's really, I, I really don't think you find anybody affirming something like the B theory until you get to like the 1900s, man, that's so interesting. And I guess, yeah, I've had like my lenses, you know, painted with that certain perspective sure. when I've yeah. read Boethius and Augustine, that's I'll have to, now you give me all this homework. Um, that's well, this really, is related to your, your question though, is yeah, yeah, the, totally. the history of doctrine come in. Yeah. And so for me, like part of the hard work was uh, for this first project of on divine timelessness was, well, what is the history? What does the tradition actually say? Yeah having to just go through all the church fathers going through a bunch of medieval thinkers, going through a bunch of uh, like reform thinkers and, and getting closer and closer, like into contemporary day and going, this actually looks really different than what people were saying. Mm-hmm. The textual evidence is very, very different. Uh, and so it's trying to set the story straight. And then, and then from there going, what problems did the tradition itself see? Yeah. And trying to develop those. And so what I did in the divine, like the time maker paper that we've read, some of those were problems that Augustine himself was dealing with. Yeah. Uh, and so instead of trying to come up with some problems that, you know, maybe nobody in the tradition thought of, like, that's fun. I, I'm happy to do that. But also going, well, what problems did they see for themselves? Yeah. Did they answer them satisfactorily? If they didn't, well, then this is a, an outstanding problem 
that remains with us as in our own generation of, of Christian theologians yeah. uh, that we need to deal with and then make a decision on. That's hilarious because uh, a lot of like the retrieval theology is retrieving good doctrines that we've kind of forgotten. You're retrieving old problems that we haven't solved yet and bringing them back. And, and yeah. solve, it's, it's hilarious that you would, instead of wanting to hide from those, ah, don't worry about it. You're saying, no, 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 here it is front and center. We know we, yeah. we haven't answered this. Let's answer it. Yes, exactly. Because I've done this in some other papers too, like my own work on the Trinity. I'm like, here's some objections that some different Arians and Eunomians came up with. I don't like any of your responses to this. I think mm. these are really bad. Yeah. I don't want to be an Arian. So uh, we, we yeah. need to do something as Christian theologians. We need to do something like to, to avoid these problems. Yeah. So it's, I think it's the, 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 pro, the project of retrieval is I think bigger and needs to be kind of some of the stuff I'm doing as well and going, if we're going to be intellectually honest, if we're going to create a really intellectually rigorous and coherent systematic theology, we have to figure out what are all the different problems and were the answers in the past, were they good enough? Do I just want to just regurgitate what they said? Or do I want to come up with like, like a better answer if yeah. there's what enough? Man, that's awesome. That's, uh, that's daunting, but that's, that's really oh, good. Yeah. There's so many things at play when you do that, right? You have to, you have to look at the reception history. You have to look mm -hmm. at original languages if you can, whatever, you know, whoever you're looking at. And then you got the philosophy going on. You have to bring that into modern thing. Yes. It's, a, it's, a, it's a whole huge project. It's a huge project. But Harold Netland at, at, at Ted's, um, yeah. I remember him saying to me once, he's like, if it's important enough, they'll translate it into English for you. So <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> that's so good. I love Netland. Um, okay. So, so that's the role. And I wanted to bring that up too, just for myself, but also for the listeners who are thinking, you know, he's, he's this theistic personalist or whatever you want to label him. And so he doesn't care about the past and he's, you know, these philosophical theologians want to, you know, just completely cut ties with the past. And, and it's not what you're doing. You're actually going deep into the past to drag things back and, and look at them under a, a microscope. Um, I also, uh, a related question is why, why would you go, why did you go into philosophical theology instead of like philosophy, for instance? Mm -hmm. um, this was partly, so when Keith Yandel was still teaching uh, at Ted's, um, it was partly his influence because I remember him one time as, uh, being asked a question. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. It was something about metaphysics and epistemology. And he was like, I absolutely love metaphysics. It just, it just happens to be completely fortunate that all the best metaphysical questions are theological questions. Mm. And, and, and so he's like, so I get to do both. Well, you know, and I'm like, that, that seems right to me. And mm. so I was thinking about it. I was like, do I want to do like straight philosophy? Do I want to do like philosophy of religion? And I was like, all the philosophical questions that I'm doing that I'm really interested in, like I want to do, I get really nitty gritty into metaphysics. I get really nitty gritty into philosophy of time and philosophy of emotion and all these kind of things. But it's all to a theological end. Like it's being generated by questions about the nature and existence of God. And so all the work I mainly do in philosophy is to help me better understand theological questions. So I guess it kind of goes back to that idea of uh, philosophy being the handmaid to theology. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of like what stuck with me was I, that's, that's really what I'm, I'm doing. That's what I'm attracted to. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's awesome. That, that I, have a, I have a really similar inclination there where I, I think, Lord willing, I'll, I'll be going into philosophy. But when, I, when I'm here in theology at TED's working a couple of degrees here, I, I want to think philosophically. I want to do philosophical theology. They, they drop the uh, philosophy of religion program. I don't know if you know that. But yeah, I do that. Yeah. I've been making it up myself through uh, systematic and, and yeah. theological studies, but just piecing it together. And then when I think about philosophy, I'm like, all my philosophical questions, exactly what you said, you know, via... Yandel, they all come back to God. 
And, and it's so interesting. What, what is my theory of time? Well, if I didn't believe in God, I guess I could just kind of pick one that kind of makes sense, but I do believe in God. So I have to make sense of reality this way. Oh, and I do believe that he's the maker of everything. So my answer should be more explanatorily, like it should have more explanatory power than your view because I mm-hmm. believe in God. And I say that he made the whole world yeah. and it just keeps coming back and back to, you know, theology proper, which is awesome and yeah. probably the scariest place to be because like if, if you're just wrestling with time you know sans any theological commitments that's cool but if you come into the theological arena and you believe in like this is stuff that you could be a heretic you could be you know you could be <laughs> yeah. stepping on some real landmines yeah definitely um so with the philosophy of time stuff though what i noticed was a bunch of different people who are atheist or agnostic they started playing the God card every now and then. I saw hmm. Michael Tooley do this. I saw oh. Adam Lepedevit do this. And they're like, well, you know, Matt, they'll give you this thought experiment. They're like, well, if God does this, and this was supposed to be an argument for some sort of view. And I'm like, but you don't believe that God exists. Why would you Why would you put God to work in your philosophy? <laughs> and then I would get really annoyed with a bunch of different Christian philosophers who, yeah, God exists. And he's just kind of hanging out there. But I'm like, put God to work in your in your philosophy. Yes. You're treating like God. He's like, he's this lazy bum. And I'm like, right. no, get a job. God. Like, you know, like I want him to do some work in my philosophy. Like, and yeah. so it's trying to figure out how to make that work. Like that's, that's the, the, the big project here. But yeah. 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 Do you ever, I mean, we could cut this if, you, if it's too personal or anything. Do you ever feel like you're in a weird spot between um, theology and philosophy? Like the, the philosophers are like, yeah, well, you're a theologian and the theologians are like, yeah, you're doing philosophy. I got that a lot when I was first getting into my PhD and, uh, and then I, I've actually, I've continued to get it. Uh, sometimes people are just like, Oh, I didn't realize you're doing all this theology stuff that you're a philosopher. And they didn't mean it like a bad thing. There's like a good thing, you know, yeah. like, Oh, you're doing philosophy. And then some others were like, no, you're, you're I, Oh, I didn't realize you did all this philosophy work, you know? Um, but then sometimes when you're trying to publish papers, people who are more philosophers, they're like, why are you doing all this history stuff? And I'm mm. like, to set the story straight of what this view is. Right. And, and they're like, just, you know, get straight to the argument. I'm like, okay. And then I've tried to publish something like that in a theology journal. They're like, that's just philosophy. We don't publish that stuff here. Yes. Yeah. And then in some different places I've been, different places I've worked, people would dismiss my view um, because, oh, that's just philosophy of religion. That's not mm-hmm. really theology. Right. And I'm like, right. I'm talking about God more than you are. Yeah. Uh, I'm bringing the Bible up more than you are. Who's doing the theology? I don't know. So, yeah, there's sometimes um, people just get confused just because just different interests. And then sometimes there really are these like different like social circles you're in and there's an ax to grind. And so the claim you're just a philosopher or you're just a theologian would be an insult. And I've, I've experienced every single one of those. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not that exciting for me to hear. Cause that's kind of the trajectory, but, but that's cool, man. It, it's good to hear that there, there are other people kind of going through that and, yeah. uh, and have gone through that and you're still, you're survived. You're still here. You you're still got to here. Yeah. For whatever that's worth. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. How, how can people, uh, find you? You got a lot of stuff going on. Can you plug that book you got behind you too? Just oh, yeah. Just yeah. Plug away. Um, so this is, uh, the new book, which is God in Emotion, which came out through Cambridge university press. Mm-hmm. That's, an element, right? that's one of the, that's one of the element series. Yeah. yeah. I was really glad to get into that series. Uh, and so that looks at the impassibility, passability debate. Okay. And so what I try to do there is just give people a snapshot of like, here's some arguments for and against each view figure out how you feel about it uh, after you're finished reading the book kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if people want to find out more about me, they can go to rtmullins.com mm-hmm. and they'll see my website. They can follow me on Facebook and Twitter as well. And then I've got the reluctant theologian podcast, which I've been doing for a while. Uh, so people can ch- check out like all the different people I'm interviewing and then find out about some of the, some of the research research I'm doing. 
Awesome. Yeah. And you can yep. find that podcast on, on all the major uh, platforms and then oh, it's right there on your website, right? Yeah. I put it on the website as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go, go find, uh, go find them on all these places. If you look on Facebook, um, currently there's a meme war. There might be more meme wars in the, uh, in the future, if you miss it uh, for, for a copy of that, uh, of that new book there. So mm-hmm. check him out, you know, find him. Uh, Ryan, this has been awesome. And I, I would love to have you back on talk sure. all, all sorts of stuff like this again. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, this has been Parker's Pensies, and um, we could talk about this more. Uh, Lord willing, someday we will. But for now, it's going to have to do it. As always, all glory to God.